Folks, it's been over four decades, and Fangoria Magazine is better than ever, and we are not just saying that because they pay our paychecks. Each issue of this magazine brings you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice! He's gonna break! Bad rock! 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 Bad and I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest today probably needs no introduction to the uh, KingCast listener base who have been begging us to get this particular person on the show since we started it. He's one of the founding members of Anthrax, the former host of The Rock Show on VH1, the author of Lobo Highway to Hell for DC Comics, and one of the most well-known and outspoken uh, Stephen King fans in the business. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Scott Ian. Scott, how are you doing today? Hey, good, man. How are you? Oh, we're uh, fantastic. Just getting through the the late stages of everything we've been dealing with over the last year, but I think we're, we're going to hold up all right. Literally, today is a year uh, that I started quarantine. I was mm. in a studio in the middle of making a record at about 7.30 tonight a year ago, when we got a call saying uh, through uh, the drummer of the band said he just got a text from his friend who is friends with California governor Gavin Newsom and that he was locking everything down the next day. Like these were the details. Everything's getting locked down. Everything's going to be closed. You're not like, you better get (laughs) to the grocery store right now. Like literally that kind of a thing. And you know, buy up all the toilet paper. Yeah. So, You know, COVID had been slowly but surely ramping up into like a, a reality of, wait, is this really happening? And and then this message comes in. So we lit. I literally dropped my guitar. I said, I, I gotta go. I've got a wife and a child at home. Like, <laughs> right. I went to Whole Foods. I spent nine hundred dollars on freaking beans, <laughs> <laughs> and and drove home. And here I am a year later, and we're still not done with the beans. <laughs> that's a lot of beans man it's a lot yeah. of beans it's a we yeah. had a lot of lentil soup that first month and that album you were working on was that the follow-up for for all kings no this was a side band uh called motor sister and we're making the follow-up to the first motor sister album and uh yes we were at Grohl studio 606 when we got the call and we all panicked <laughs> <laughs> and we literally finished we finished the motor sister record yesterday so that's done now Oh, hell oh, yes. Nice. Congratulations. Thanks. And uh, it, it's funny, the the sort of like the, the rush for toilet paper that was mentioned a minute ago, like when the shit was going down here in Texas a, a few weeks back, 
and we had our little winter apocalypse adventure. Um, right. You know, I finally got to target and, you know, there were no lights on inside or anything and we were able to go in. It was very like walking dead in this place. You know, they had areas roped off with like, like caution tape and shit. (laughs) And, um, while we were standing in line outside, uh, my wife and I watched someone come out of the store with just shit tons of toilet paper again. And we were like, did you, do you not remember what happened a year ago? Like the toilet paper thing is not an issue. Like you don't have to do this. Um, but I guess, I guess that's just like a, a survival instinct that has been baked into uh, a certain kind of person during all these, you know, uh, high intensity shenanigans we've been going through in the last couple of years is to just buy a fuckload of toilet paper. I don't get it, but you know, well, yeah, I got a, uh, one of those, I mean, like I would get $900 worth of beans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that makes sense. But but I, I got like a club membership, so like Sam's Club, Costco kind of thing. So when I buy toilet paper, I pretty much buy a year supply anyway, right? So right. So uh, yeah, I, I thankfully I never got caught in that that mess. It's weirdly nostalgic, which is kind of fucked up, and I'm realizing now, and I'm gonna have to deal with with that. But the nostalgia of like the hunt for for uh, you know just. Items. Like cleaning supplies, Clorox and <laughs> yeah, is like any anything that, that could get there was no masks on sale. And like I, I remember I had to like cu- cut up my, my old uh, an old undershirt to make a mask to go into a store because there's no you couldn't buy masks online. You know, there just weren't any available. It's uh, right. people are going to look back at this time. We got They're a nice long. We got time. a real nice long look at ourselves, didn't we? <laughs> right. You know, like that's 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 where we're at. Uh, Scott, I've been I've been actually waiting to talk to you for some years because uh, the first time that Anthrax really came onto my radar as a as a person was when when the band appeared on um, Married with Children. And so a question I need to get out of the way right up front is uh, what was it like to trash the Bundy's house? How surreal is that? Um, That was probably that whole week uh, really cemented the idea in my brain that I was definitely in the wrong business Um, because getting, (laughs) getting to be on that show, which we were all huge fans of. Yeah. um, And then get to live in that world, the world of really successful TV sitcom world uh, and see how it all works. Cause you're there all week uh, until you shoot in front of the live audience on Friday evening. And, uh, um, seeing how a show got gets put together every week. And then, you know, the added bonus of, oh, and by the way, you're going to trash the house and we're going to just give <laughs> you guys access to all of this breakaway furniture and breakaway bottles. And I mean, that was that week still to this day was just what what an unbelievable experience. And they actually um we, we didn't really get in trouble, but they, they kindly asked us after it was probably about on Wednesday, Wednesday, like halfway through the week was when the first time we actually rehearsed with any of the damage and, um, <laughs> you know, doing the, uh, breaking things up and getting the smash bottles. And I mean, you give a bunch of metal dudes, fake beer bottles that you smashed over each other's heads. And we just, we never stopped. And then they actually had to tell us, uh, this stuff's kind of expensive and 
um, a bit labor intensive <laughs> to make. So you're going to have to save it now for Friday. And we were super bummed because all we wanted to do all day long was smash things <laughs> over each other's heads. I'm like, you get, you get paid. I said to Ed O'Neill, you get paid to do this. And he just had the biggest smile on his face. <laughs> That guy seems I, like he would be a, a, just a delight of a human being. Like he's he, the nicest he, dude. Yeah, he seems that <laughs> uh, way. He it comes through, even not unmarried with children, perhaps. But, <laughs> right. You know, he was the best, and he was super helpful, and kind of went out of his way to help us. With you know, you'd think it would just be easy to be playing yourself, but it could very easily come off very stiff because we're not actors, and uh, and he had lots of. Uh, comments and lots of help with our lines, you know, on, on where to, you know, where the inflection is and wh- which word to hit and how to hit your mark and blah, 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 and where to pause. And he was super helpful with all that stuff. And at one point I asked him, I, I said, you're, you know, after hanging out with you now for a few days, you're obviously not Al Bundy. You know, he's, even his voice is different and super intelligent, you know, just super smart and really funny. And, and, uh, I said, you're obviously not Al Bundy. I'm like, it's it's just amazing to me. You know, I've always heard it takes a very smart person to play dumb really well on, you know, on camera. And he goes, Scott, he said, and because he was in his Al Bundy outfit, he said, you see this dirty T-shirt? I said, yeah. He said, it's, I've literally gotten down to as soon as I put the dirty T-shirt on, I just become Al now. <laughs> That's awesome. Just a dirty stinky t-shirt or something that's yeah that's 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 perfect and the other thing i wanted to ask you about is um you guys had a a song anti-social appear in it chapter one andy machetti's it chapter one in a pivotal scene in that movie in the in the the rock fight sequence i'm curious at what point it, it wasn't on the soundtrack but i have to assume that this was clear with the band beforehand and so i'm curious about the conversations you had with with uh, the filmmakers on that, you know, well, no conversations at all. What really? Is, yeah, of course it was cleared and, and all that, but that was done so far in advance of that movie actually being in the theater. And so when that movie opened, uh, the the day it opened, I started getting texts from people. Holy shit! Oh my god! Social, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? What? Like they're like it. It's in it. It's in the rock fight scene. It's like, it's so perfect. It's amazing, you know. And I was like, oh yeah, I I completely forgotten. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking like over a year before, yeah. like, and that that literally happens where I'll get an email from a manager, and it'll say. Uh, and then it'll come either from the label to him and then he sends it to me and it'll say, you know, so, so-and-so wants to use uh, antisocial in this. And of course I see it's, you know, it, and I'm like, Oh, great. And then if, you know, I'm being honest, I was actually like, uh, as well, because what if it's terrible? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Know? What if it's a, it's a terrible King adaptation. And, uh, but of course I'm going to say, yes, it's like, yeah, we're going to do it. And then I forgot about it. So then uh, it's funny. I keep saying I forgot about it and it and it. But <laughs> so then my wife and I went to see it the next day, like a, a, like an afternoon showing, I think. And um, yeah, that I got so pumped, so excited when it, you know, the song kicks in over that scene. And uh, and, uh, you know, one of the kids is wearing a shirt and uh, 
And I was like, oh man, this is like, really for me, it's almost in a, in a weird way. It's like, okay, you know, King name checked us in drawing of the three. And mm-hmm. now we have a song in, in, in his world, in his universe. Like it's just, it, <laughs> so it was just such an amazingly cool moment. And the movie was great. So that made yeah. me that's a triple win. And you didn't even have to like you, you didn't know ahead of time like what the context of the song's usage would be. No, I didn't know. We didn't know it was going to be that scene. Uh, um, it's such a perfect drop for that scene. Yeah. You know? oh, yeah. 100%. See, you, you probably would have known if you were like, nah, I'm not sure about it. I need to talk to the filmmaker before I decided. Because then they would have tried to court you and 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 <laughs> been like, mm, that's really true. In this thing. Yeah, it's true. You know, and I thinking about that now, I, I, I probably actually could have gotten on the phone with someone if I really, because obviously they knew and they wanted to use that song for right. specifically for that scene. So, yeah, who knows? I could have weaseled my way into a set visit somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right. Could have had a cameo. You could have been one of the the dairy residents. Yeah, yeah, I could have been a really shitty parent <laughs> <laughs> in a fat suit, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I, uh, you are you are notoriously uh, a huge Stephen King fan. I'm very curious to hear uh, your answer to a question we we ask all of our guests, which is, "What is your Stephen King origin story? Was it a book? Was it a movie? Like, how do you get into it?" It was a co- it was a book and a movie. Carrie, my mom was a big horror fan when she was growing up. So you know, all through the fifties, she used to go to the movies on the weekends and you know see whatever horror or sci fi was playing cut to of course years later she's got two boys and um we very quickly fell into a world of watching horror movies on saturdays and sundays whether it was on tv or uh you know saturday sunday mornings on tv or going to see you know all the original universal stuff and hammer stuff or whatever i mean i started watching horror movies probably when i was six or seven even and like dark shadows on television when i was a kid yeah yeah um, cause I'm, I'm 57. So I was around back then. And, uh, but my mom, my mom, uh, read Carrie. Uh, I, I can't remember specifically how she found out about it, but she, she was an avid reader and, and she read the New York times all the time. So I think she had read a review, uh, in the New York times book review about this new horror author who had something new to say and this, you know, how great the book was. And I think that, basically was her motivation to check it out and she read Carrie and loved it and I so I remember her talking about it but I was 10 I think when Carrie came out it was a 74 75 yeah thereabouts um, so I was like 10 or 11 so it was a little inappropriate for me to read it and then she saw the movie when the movie got made and she loved the movie and of course that was inappropriate for probably a 12 year old at that time, but I finally convinced her to let me read the book. Uh, by that point in time, probably when I was around 12, I read the book and I was like, Oh my God, you know, this is, this is incredible. This is amazing. Like I was a fan. I had already read Dracula. I had already read like a lot of horror, but I had never read anything like this before. And lucky for me by that point, uh, Night Shift was already out, and I believe Salem's Lot was already out, and I think, like, The Stand was coming. So I already had a couple of more books to be able to go get, 
um, you know, it's not like I had to sit around and wait for the next Stephen King book. I had, there already were other books out and then the stand followed not long after that. And like, I think actually, did I say the shining, the shining might've been out already. So suddenly I had this world to escape into, but it was, it was Carrie that opened the doors for me. And years later when I had the wherewithal and I, I'm not a big collector of things, but I started collecting Stephen King first editions and I found like a pretty mint condition first edition carry hardcover that I eventually got him to sign for me. And that's like my prize possession. You must have a ridiculous setup for your collection at this point then. It's a nice bookcase. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You've done like new shows where you've got guided people. I've seen some, you show off your collection to like a news guy (laughs) somewhere. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's very impressive. It's make, it definitely makes me jealous. You you have all the the good like Grant like double double edition Dark Towers and you know the double yeah. I have all the numbered stuff. yeah. I have I have all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff I don't have, and some of it is just so uh, uh, so expensive, prohibitively expensive that you know it would hard be hard for me to uh, you know unless at some point someone backs a truck full of money up to my front door. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, it's, you know, when you're talking about, I mean, you guys know about the plant, I assume. And, right. you know, yeah, to, of course. Like to get those little chat books, it'll cost you upwards of 25, 30 grand to get a if What? You oh yeah. Because Holy no one, fuck, anyone, anyone who has those even, it's because they were on his Christmas card list. That was the only way to even get those. So right. you're talking about people who are pretty close to him every once in a while, one or a set will come up for sale. And I'm friends with this guy, Gerald Winters, who has a uh, uh, bookstore in Bangor, Maine. And he's, you know, he's the aficionado on King books. And uh, he had a set there that he had already sold, but the, the buyer let him keep it there till he was going to pick it up. And uh, so I, I, at least I got to see and actually hold a set of the plant. And I'm pretty sure it was around 30 grand. I mean, the idea to spend 30 grand on these, literally these handmade little rexograph books that like <laughs> i was like jesus like like if they were for sale would i like would i have done it and I, my son who was actually with me and was this is about four or five years ago so he was you know like, like five he's like daddy you can't spend thirty thousand dollars on that i was like, <laughs> I was like no you're you are a hundred percent correct <laughs> Well, that's a whole nother level of, of Stephen King collecting there. I mean, the first edition thing is, is one, one thing, but there's that whole sub level of the exclusive of the exclusives, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, you, you could, you could go crazy trying to yeah, do that. I mean, I, there, I, there, you know, there are the things like the plant is one of those holy grails, the, the asbestos cover fire starter, right? which I, I think there was only 26. I think they were just 26, you know, lettered A to Z. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if you, it's so rare that they come up for sale because the people that own them don't need to sell them. Right. Um, so it, it, that's, you know, that's why they're so expensive because they're just never available. Right. Then, then it's a generational thing. You got to wait for that person to die and their kids to sell off their, yeah, exactly. their collections. Uh, yeah. I met, I, I went to that bookstore uh, when I was in Bangor and uh, um, I talked to, to the guy who owned it. I'm assuming it's the same person that we're yeah, talking about. Harold. Yeah, yeah. And he, this is the I one that flooded, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What a fucking tragedy, by the way. Right. I've, I've been there as well. It's 
It's like a it's like a Stephen King museum for anyone uh-huh. who hasn't been there. Yeah. It's it's incredible. incredible. Like all the display things are like you know the paperback of Bachmans and stuff, and you know they, he has pretty much everything. Um, Dude had the plane chairs from Langoliers. Like he had right. shit you would never think that someone would have. It was amazing. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, Gerald is the man. He's a really great guy. Yeah, I asked him about like okay beyond the grant editions and the signed editions, like what. What are the rare, you know, the rarest things? And he's like, uh, I think specifically Dark Tower. I was asking about Dark Tower and he's like, oh, well, you know, I think that probably the rarest Dark Tower memorabilia or Dark Tower edition book that's not like the obvious thing is this uh, Hotter and Stoughton the you in the uk they uh uh that's the uk publisher right, they right. they sent out uh advanced reading copies of the final dark tower book but unlike most arcs they were uh numbered and there were only a hundred of them and i'm just like dude i have that that they sent me that i knew a guy wow. there who sent used to send me the manuscripts so i got the manuscripts for um wolves song of Susanna, and uh uh, and then the advanced reading copy of of the Dark Tower from that guy directly. He was a, I wrote for a site called Ain't It Cool News back then. Oh, and I, I was used to, I used to read that site all the time. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, have you ever read anything by Quint? That was me. That was my. Oh my, my gosh! My, my of nickname. course. Wait, so oh, you nice. you're friends with Patton Oswalt, aren't you? Well, yeah, yeah, I know Patton. Yeah, okay, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. No, he's uh, shit. I remember Patton. Like I would when I went to LA, I'd visit my uh, buddy Drew McQueenie, who was Moriarty on the site, and right. uh, yeah. he was really close with uh, Patton. So I'd be just. He was like, "Here's my comedian friend." This was like we're talking late nineties, yeah, know, yeah, early two thousands, and he was just like, "Like my comedian friend." I'm like, "Oh, cool, you're one of us." And then of course he became Patton Oswalt, right? Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, so yeah, I, I found out through that that way that I have one of the rarest Dark Tower books you can get and just sitting on my bookshelf. So oh, that's amazing. So just by happenstance, um, I'm going to rob your motherfucking house, dude. That's I know what, you that's what happens next. <laughs> um, now, you you chose a Dark Tower book to talk about. And but before we jump into that, I'd very much like to circle back around to Metal's relationship with Stephen King, because something that kind of uh struck me like looking back on it like the 70s rock bands were obsessed with tolkien right you had you had like um you know zeppelin in particular would always name check tolkien stuff you know but your work particularly you know you've among the living and skeleton in the closet and you know others are very direct uh nods to king properties and i've noticed that there's a whole bunch of of King love in the metal community. Maybe you're the person to ask about this, but like, why do you think that that metal kind of embraced King as hard as they did? Well, it's just, I think metal metal and horror in general have always gone hand in hand. Right. The, the, the extremes of the, the two types of music. I sorry. The, the extremes of the two types of, of the art form. I went, I was saying two types of music because I was thinking of, you know, you could go from heavy metal all the way through to black metal and all the different subgenres and whatever. And um, so, the more extreme it gets, you could also say the same thing about horror. You could there's there's very mainstream horror, and then there's extreme horror. Uh, you know, depending on on what your tastes are. Just for me, everyone I knew, everyone I knew in the early days, you start meeting other bands, your peers, whether it was like us and Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth, let's say, or and Exodus and all the bands that formed around that same time in 81. And we all, you know, started coming up together. 
we were all into the same music. We were all into the same horror movies. We were all into the same horror books. It was just, it was the age group at the time, really. I mean, we, we came of age in a really great time for horror in the seventies, you know, when, whether, you know, say starting from uh, exorcist and going, going through to the Friday, the 13th movies and uh, Halloween, of course, you know, being like you know, the, the pinnacle, uh, you know, and then yeah, getting into Christmas. The and, yeah. The seventies is a great time for horror. Amazing, Phantasm amazing. And, yeah. Yeah. The, the late seventies, amazing time for horror. And then of course, getting into the eighties, a great time for horror. And, you know, things started to change maybe after that. And it, when it, uh, I was never a big fan of the torture porn kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. I understand a lot of people wanted more extreme, more extreme. That's not this conversation, but uh, just for me, you know, it was the, the age group that I was a part of and the music we were playing. And uh, all of us were just into that. All of us and comic books too. You got to throw in there we're all in the comics too. So um, I just think it was the age group and the time we all became 12 and 13 years old. And sure. you know, there was so much great horror and great music and great comics to, to, to check right. out. I mean, there's gotta be a cool factor to King too, which is weird to say, cause you hear that guy talk. He's, you know, he's kind of a dork. It's why I love him, you know? So here's this kind of like just a nice dude with thick glasses and kind of buck teeth, you know, and just talking about, you know, scary stuff. But like the, it's so it's odd to say that he was the cool option, but it's not like I hear many you know metalheads clamoring for Dean Koontz songs. You know what I mean? It's like there's so so I yeah I'm very curious. I'm just curious about like what it, was it just the popular culture? It's what you were reading. It's what was cool to read. Well, he you know, was I mean, the best. That's, yeah, he's writing the best. Horror that's true. Book. Right. It just quality. Right. Yeah. Think about the books that came out between Carrie. And the early 80s, just the shining in the stand alone. Mm-hmm. If that's all he ever wrote, he would <laughs> still be uh, he would be like J.D. Salinger. You know what I mean? He, sure. would be, he would be on such a pet. He wrote two of the best books, not only in, in the, the genre of horror, but just two of the best books. Right. Like, if, like I would I would think those books, they're just so great as literature that they would cross over to any like, let's say top hundred books of all time. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? You you could argue that the shining is the best horror book ever written. He was the best and, you know, still is the best. So I think, you know, you're as a fan of a genre, that's what you're drawn to. When I saw Halloween, when Halloween first came out and I went to the theater, the theater to see that uh, it was very apparent to me that this might be the best horror movie I see for a very, very, very long time. Like, what could ever top this? You know what I mean? And then Carpenter did with The Thing a few years later, in my mm-hmm. my humble opinion. But, uh, you know, you just gravitate to what's great in, in, a, in an art form. And King was the best. Speaking of that, and also speaking of The Shining, you must have been at exactly the age to see Kubrick's Shining in the theater on release. Yes? Yes. Yeah. Oh, of course. What was, what was that like? I like um, and and I'll, I'll I'll preface the question only by saying that my mother was a huge Stephen King fan. She went to see The Shining in the theater when she was pregnant with me, I think, and right. hated it because it wasn't the same as the book. You know, so as a you must have been a you were a, a confirmed King nerd by that point. Like how did you 
How do you react to it? Uh, yeah, I, I feel the same. And this is, you know, this is long before I had ever even read an interview with him where he was talking about his disappointments in that film. Um, that was, it wasn't until way later, you know, at some point that I found out, oh, oh Stephen King didn't like the adaptation either, specifically the, Jack Nicholson. And I agree. I agree. The fact that you, you only think of Jack Nicholson as being Jack Nicholson and I, you never get the sense of him being somewhat normal. You just, from the start of the movie, you just know it's, you're just waiting for, you know, him to come through the door with the ax and he's just that guy from the start. And I'm kind of projecting because I did, you know, years <laughs> later read how King felt about it, but no, I did. I, I remember walking out of the theater uh, with my friends and say, like, I did like some of it, but I remember walking out being like, what the fuck was that? Like, it felt so disjointed to me. It just, it didn't flow like the book. And uh, I just, I, I, I didn't like the kid who played Danny. Uh, mm-hmm. that little kid me. I just didn't like him. Uh, I loved room 217. Like I, you know, there's parts of it I loved, but as a, as a whole, no, I was, I, you know, the book shits all over it. Are you still of that opinion? Well, over the years, of course, as I grew up and I understood things more and I think my tastes have gotten more <laughs> refined as I've gotten older. But yeah, I, I think at some point, probably in my 30s, uh, sitting and watching that movie again and being able to keep the two things completely separate right. uh, in my brain, because at, at like 16 or whatever I was at the time, when that came out, no, it was just all the fuck this. The book is better. When I grew up, I was able to separate the two. So my answer to that would be, uh, I, I do like the movie now completely separate from the book as a standalone piece. Um, I think it's great. So that's kind of where I've evolved to as a, as a human. (laughs) If you're a fan of a thing, like a, like a hardcore fan of a thing, like you must have been for King at the time, and you're 16, 17, like around that age, you are not of the correct age, I don't think, to open your mind to artistic interpretation. You're just (laughs) not, you know, you want the thing you wanted. You know, you want the exact thing. You know, there's so many movies I saw at that age where I was like, fuck this garbage. And then like now I'm like, oh, that movie fucking ripped. Are you you kidding me? You know, so I get that. I, I, I get it completely but you're you're here today to talk to us about wizard and glass one of the entries in the in the dark tower saga this is not the normal uh format of our show but uh when you threw this out there as a a title to talk about we were like absolutely fucking yes like this is this is one of our favorite books we know it's one of your favorite books and uh just like in in general and in the dark tower cycle just as a starting point, can you talk a little bit about why you picked this? You could have picked any title, but you picked this one. I get asked a lot about King. You know, of course, the main, what's your favorite book? You know, it's just, that's the easiest question in the world. Whether it's anytime I'm being interviewed, what's your favorite album? What's your favorite? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and and so I, I, I like to make things more difficult for people sometimes. And I'll be like, well, the whole dark tower series, that's my favorite. I count it as one book. I just, I'm an asshole. And when I do that and really, I mean, yeah, if I take the whole thing as one entity, 
that would be my favorite thing as much as I love the stand, which, cause if I, if you put a, you know, a gun to my head, I would probably say the stand. I've read it three, four times. I think I've read it in my life. And, uh, but the dark tower series as a whole, it's just something that, you know, for me, you've got Lord of the Rings and you've got the dark tower. And to me, those are the two greatest fantasy epics ever written. And, and I've read a lot of other fantasy epics, great ones, shitty ones, Dark Tower, for me, there's a connection to it. I don't know if it's because I'm from New York City and New York City plays a big role throughout, mm-hmm. uh, you know, throughout the series. But there's just something about it that I connect with in a very, very strong way. Um, Wizarding Glass, for me, is the best of the series. That's my favorite book. It was. It's very easy for me to, to narrow that down and say Wizarding Glass is my favorite. So when you know i had this option to come on here and talk about something really i think i was just looking for the excuse to carve out some time to reread wizarding glass because it had been so long <laughs> that's that's totally fair i have a question here um kind of circling back to the shining viewing experience where your your expectation when you first see something versus what you can versus it kind of simmering and you know living in your imagination for a while was your first experience with wizard and glass like just big doe eyes in love with it or was it something you had to see within the context of the entire series before you singled it out as your favorite of the oh i loved it i remember what reading because it came out in 97 mm-hmm. and i i i remember reading it like i would jump back sometimes five, six chapters and then read again um, mm-hmm. just because it, it was, you know, the whole, the whole tale of Susan Delgado. Right. Um, it was, it was just so incredible. The whole thing was just so fantastic to me. The the whole coming of age of Roland and Elaine. And I hate the way he pronounces Cuthbert. And I know that that is the correct way, right? It's Cuthbert. Uh, We're calling it. I know, it but I read. I read online. Wait, the pronunciation is supposed to be Cuthbert, mm-hmm. and I hate you know, that. All I all say, kinds of people have all kinds of weird right, ideas. So then, <laughs> I'm, then I'll go with Cuthbert because that yeah. sounds better to me. But uh, I practically read it twice the first time I read it because I kept going back because uh, I loved what I was reading so much. I wanted to read it again immediately, and I could. I'm going to read you this because I I actually. I, I email with Stephen King. We, you know, it's not, it's not something that we, I'm not talking to do to the dude every day, but right. we, we do email each other. Like I, I'm just about done with later the new book. And I just, I wrote, I dropped him a note about the book and, and I told him how I just finished rereading wizard in glass. And I, I made some comments about it and uh, I'm going to read you what he wrote back to me. Because I said to him similar what I said to you, Scott, in an email about how I've, I felt like I hadn't really felt the weight of Roland's decision after he sees, after he looks into the, the grapefruit, you know, into the glass towards the end of the book. And oh, first, is this the Eyebolt Canyon thing? Yeah, when he, when he, when, yeah, when yeah, the tower, yeah, yeah. When he, he travels, he travels in the, in Merlin's grapefruit, the tower is revealed to him. And in that moment, he realizes nothing matters except for the tower. And he, you know, when he comes back and he's like, he already knows Susan doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't as hard as that is. It doesn't matter. He's not going to marry her. 
He's going to leave. He can't be with her because his his mistress is the tower now. The only reason he's even going to finish this mission in Hambry is because it's in the way. Like the tower becomes all consuming. And I I don't think I really felt that as much until I just reread it and really felt the weight of that on him and understood the pull of it. And so I wrote that to uh, Steve and he wrote to me, he said, about Roland and Wizard and Glass, all I could say is that was when Roland started to become a decent human being. It was what impelled me forward. It's maybe my favorite of those books. It's got to be, right? It's the most It's the most emotionally substantial of the books, I would say. Yeah, and, and for him, you know, to be able to, you know, you read the first three and you have this idea and this picture of who Roland is. Uh, you know the hard case, and then you get to read this, and uh, and then moving forward after he finishes telling the story, and they're sitting on the side of I seventy in the the weird green, you know, the green palace with flagging it is ahead of them, and uh, you really get the sense that it really took Roland telling that story, and then his friends not hating him for it, especially when they find out that he mistakenly you know shoots his mother. And that his friends stayed with him and his friends still love him. I I think, you know, you really start to see him become, you know, who he goes on to become. He becomes like kind of for the first time ever in his who knows how old he is. uh, He starts to become like a fully formed, evolved person. And that's King writing that. He had to create this character that was one way and then open open him, him up and get us as the audience to accept him as not necessarily less than that hard guy, but just not the hard guy who you initially fall in love with because he's just the hardest dude, you know? So yeah, it's just, it's just brilliant. Everything about it. Everything about it is brilliant. (laughs) Can I, can I just say how fucking rad it, it must be to just go, you know, I'm rereading a dark tower book and I have some thoughts. I'm going to email Stephen King and have him write back like nice little, yeah, Roland is this, and you know. yeah, I don't uh, assume I don't assume that he's ever going to reply because right. there have been times where I've and I don't just always write him and ask right. him about things that he's written because how lame and boring would that get <laughs> for, for him? <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, you know, sometimes it'll be music, just whatever related. Sometimes I'll be like, "Oh, hey, did you see this?" Or uh, you know, I try and think of something that maybe, oh, maybe. He'll think this is cool, <laughs> but, and I, right. I definitely don't overuse it because I don't ever want to be a pain in the ass. Right. Anybody. But I was, I had wizard, uh, wizard and glass so much on my brain. And I was like, I just, I have to, I just have to tell him this, whether he answers me or not. I just, I just need to know that I, even if it just went into the, into the ether, I just felt like I, I have to say this. I well, think that, um, well, Eric, you got something. Well, I was just going to, like kind of dive into what you were talking about um, in terms of this being very much a Roland uh, centric book where it's, it's really interesting within the context of the entire series um, and it gets derided a little bit for being quote unquote, a flashback book. But, you know, I think in Scott and I have discussed this multiple times, sometimes on the air, sometimes not. Uh, but like anybody who's a fan of the series, when they look at this book, there's something that stands out about wizard and glass, just in terms of King's writing, there's a depth to it that maybe 
not saying that there, there isn't depth to the rest of the series, but there's a depth and clarity combination where everything's just firing on all cylinders. I think Scott, you've remarked in the past about how wizard and glass like is kind of a demarcation line in the series. Cause there's like, yes, absolutely. Post, post accident. It's the, it's the, it's the, accident. It's the yeah. linchpin of the series. I think. Right. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so it, it is one of the most fascinating things I remember. And the reason why I asked about your initial impressions, because I remember my first read through of this, uh, I must've been about the age you were in uh, uh, seeing the shining. Actually, uh, if it came out in 97, I was 16 and I, uh, I read it and I remember loving it, but there was also that part of me where at this point in the series, you have, it's taken three books to gradually bring the content together. And by the end of book three, they are all, they're finally on their adventure. And, you know, then they get trapped on Blaine the Mono and, you know, that's the cliffhanger. And then, you know, I, that, that was the last book that was out when I started reading the, the Dark Tower books. So there was like four years or four or five years between reading uh, Wastelands and then Wizard and Glass. Right. And, and so it picks up right where it left off and we get a resolution of the cliffhanger, which I really enjoyed. And, you know, they're on the road, they're in Kansas, like an alternate Kansas. And there's, they're in the stand. Right. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're captain trips and walking yeah. dude references everywhere. And I'm just like, fuck. Yeah. The content's there and they're walking through Stephen King, you know, uh, <laughs> characters and iconography and, and locations. And this is, this is crazy. And then they sit down to have, you know, to have that talk and that it, for a very thick book, our content is in it for maybe what, a hundred pages, 150 pages of thereabouts uh, of, uh, of like what a, a seven, 800 page book. And, uh, and so I remember I had that little initial feeling of like, I want to be, see more of the content. I want to be on that adventure. Um, I, I want to see that, but even that, even 16 year old me who was impatient for that, was falling in love with Susan was falling in love with Magus was falling in love with that whole, you know, area in the fantasy of, of, you know, the, this evil Rhea, you know, this despicable Rhea, the coups and like all this stuff was like, was, was getting to me. So I guess this is my big roundabout way of saying that uh, I think that there is a little bit of a reputation for this one being kind of a bottle episode of the, of the series, but that I think that especially when you look at it within the context of everything yes. that comes after it, it is the only point in the series where he could have taken that moment to breathe and to, to give Roland um, to flesh him out, as you were saying, and make him, make him the character that can carry us through the rest of the series. Yeah. And I mean, and look, King says it himself. It's what kept him interested in moving mm. forward with these books was, was changing Roland and this was the way he had to do it. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I was a different age than you certainly when I read that book, I was already 33 years old when I read it. And, and for me, yeah, I, I always want more Eddie, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. That's, that's for sure. You know, but um, at the same time, I didn't miss that content because we had the original content, right? That's true. You know, uh, uh, and getting getting to see why Roland is and who Roland is and how Roland is and that his his father and his I was just as obsessed with any little gleaning bit of information about Gilead and the workings of that and and so just all of those things that that we were getting in that book for me it definitely filled it filled any hole that I wasn't getting you know by not spending time with Jake and Eddie and Susanna. 
You know, that's probably a good segue into any discussion we might have about the uh, the pilot that Glenn Mazzara and company put together for the Amazon Dark Tower series. That pilot starts with basically a, a, a page for page recreation of Roland leading up to Brown's hut. But then Roland, after Brown has died, leaves and continues on the trail. In the books, he goes to meet Jake. But in this version, he goes into Hambry. And you do get like so much of that cotet shit that right. that is that is largely missing for well, it was completely missing from the uh the movie, obviously. I've never um, seen it. I won't see it. Yeah, don't <laughs> I mean don't bother if you haven't already. I have no you know? reason to. It has nothing to do with how I feel or think about the Dark Tower. I I can't I, right. I can't see it. Right. But they do some interesting things with the Cotet, like the original Cotet in in that pilot. I think they do it justice. The pilot takes place in Magus? The, a bit, yeah. The pilot begins as any Dark Tower, you know, story is, should begin. And it's, you know, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. Right. But the man in black in question is Martin and he's being chased by young Roland after the events in Gilead. Right. So it is, it's an, the pilot was setting up essentially starting with the wizard and glass storyline wow. uh, coming d- down to, down to Susan. Uh, you know, we meet Susan and she's, she goes and has her her purity test with Rhea, and right. you know the wow. the grapefruit is hinted at, and and we meet uh, the big coffin hunters and and uh, and all that stuff. So it uh, yeah, we we had Glenn Mazar on the show. He essentially laid out since Amazon canceled canceled the season and or the series, and only the only thing that will exist is his pilot, which Glenn was very uh, kind in in letting us watch um, before we talked to him. Uh, but he lays out everything. That I, he was gonna do. I, I don't understand. It's not like, I mean, we're in a period where more people are watching television and at home watching television than ever in the history of this planet. These streaming networks need content. Like, I just don't understand. Right. Amazon makes <laughs> enough in two hours to have put that on for six seasons. Right, right. Whatever their budget is, I think that they were more comfortable allocating that available budget to the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that, no, that I, I get it. I know they're spending like a hundred million dollars or something on there, right? So yeah, well, yeah um, they, they bought it. They bought it for over a billion, right? Yeah, it's so, fucking, it's fucking bananas. They bought they, the, that was just for the rights. That doesn't even count the the money they're spending on the show. It's, it's I'm crazy. so mad about this. I don't give a fuck about Lord of the Rings at this point. <laughs> you don't want to see the I, Lord of the Rings prequel. I, yeah. I've seen the definitive version of Lord of the Rings. I don't ever care about a fucking prequel. Give me a Dark Tower show, exactly. and especially like yes. that guy knew what he was fucking doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that episode perfectly portrayed Hambry and that Wizard and Glass feel. And right. it's it's just heartbreaking that we don't get to see yeah. a continuation of that. I rewatched it again the other night, and like it gets better every time I see it. For one um, thing, and I liked well, it to begin with, and and now I'm just like I'm just fucking furious. They didn't who played go for Roland it. again? Oh, I don't know. No one you've <laughs> ever heard of. I can look he, it up. Yeah, he was. Um, he it was a younger Roland, and one of the interesting things that Glenn was telling us was that. His plan was over the course of I think it was two seasons to tell the Wizard and Glass story. Uh-huh. It was yeah, either basically. two or three. Yeah. And uh and that it was gonna be like a very long 
you know, in-depth thing in that that was going to end with him, you know, becoming uh, becoming the gunslinger from the gunslinger. And by that time, he was even saying he was going to recast. He was going to recast an older actor right. um, for, for the role. And like everything he was saying was so smart. Like he added uh, a character to the quartet nearly. And we were like, well, why, why did you add a new character? And he's like, well, I wanted it to mirror exactly the quartet we were getting later down to, you know, the new member being, you know, a woman, you know, and, you know, stuff like that. So it was like, and so he was doing like all this stuff to lay the groundwork, you know, for what would happen four seasons later. Like right. it was, it was really great talking to him about it. I see. It's like, it was a guy named Sam strike. That's right. And uh, yeah. Michael Rooker was in it. Oh yeah. yeah. He, he was yeah. elder Jonas, I think. Yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. Wow. He's so fucking good in it. And the guy they got playing uh flag or the man in black or Walter or whatever they're calling him. Oh in this yeah. Particular the uh, version. actor. He was so fucking they they do the the creepiest shit with that guy. You know, he's pale, borderline albino looking. But right. you know, he's in the getup and all that. And uh they do shit in the pilot where I don't know, how would you describe it, Eric? Like his his face is he reminds me of Bowie almost in that right. episode. He's off putting. He looks kind of sickly sometimes. He's they they like do this visual effect with him where he's almost like warping reality when people are looking at him. Yeah, that's like, what I'm think, thinking about. Like the way yeah. his face would change based on just the camera. It was mm-hmm. it was it's hard to describe, but like a, a glorious effect. Um, Cuz that I mean that happens in the in the book like when Jonas goes to seafront and he, he, I forget who he's, he was, I think he thought he was meeting Reimer and he walks in and it's, it's flag in there and mm. flag like got this tittery laugh and Jonas is, it's Jonas's point of view. And he's talking about how he sees his face, but then he realizes, no, that's not this, that's not his face. Now this is his face, <laughs> right. sharp teeth and, and yep. like his face keeps kind of changing. And, and I love it. That scene too, in the book, I think, is it that scene or another scene where, you know, the flag character, he talks about stuff from other, you know, in the multiverse, he talks about things from other realities and other worlds. He brings them up. And every time Kings does that, it's such a tease, you know, uh, there's this part of me that, that holds out hope. I, I talked to Joe Hill about this once because Joe Hill and I, we did a Boston comic con together. We were both there with IDW comics uh, signing and, we basically spent the weekend together and I, I said, you know, I'm holding out hope that, you know, someday you and your dad, are, you know, you've been working on this in secret for years and you're going to put out like this another 14,000 pages of Dark Tower World. That- <laughs> <laughs> and he just smiled at me. He's like, hey, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how long ago was that? That was a couple of years ago. I don't know, four years, four or five years ago. Yet another Kinkass exclusive. We have <laughs> yeah. fourteen thousand more pages to come. Yeah, imagine <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. As Eric touched on earlier, like when I first read Wizard and Glass, I was not really into it. I was too young, and I didn't have the appreciation for it. You know, like uh, we came out of Wastelands, we came out of this huge cliffhanger. It's resolved pretty much very quickly in the first yeah, and, and of course it being a giant giant action 
set piece, the whole beginning with on Blaine and uh, heading to Topeka. I mean, it's this huge action sequence, basically the whole time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, and then it resolves and then it's a flashback and then it's a romance on top of that. I was so frustrated by this. You know, I was, it was just not what I needed from this series at that time. Right. And I was, I was kind of mad about it. Now, when I look back on it, it, I think it's not only the richest writing that King has done on the Dark Tower, but I also think it's, it's the best world building. Yeah, the, so just the, in, yeah. the details of it and the, the intricacy of this particular sliver of the Dark Tower world are so they're communicated so well. You know, there's there's never a point where you, where you're in doubt about anything, and I I feel like it's also the demarcation line between the back half of the series where it became more pop culture inspired. Right. Right, You know, you get this Wizard of Oz thing happening at the end of Wizard and Glass, and then it goes right into Wolves of the Kala, which is like a Seventh Samurai thing or Dr. Doom riding around on Harry Potter shit and lightsabers and all kinds of shit. Like this is the the right turn that the uh, the series takes. I'm, I'm curious if Scott, do you think that if. Stephen King had not had that accident with the van at that time. Do you think that the back half of the series looks different or do you think that this was always what he planned? I mean, you know, I certainly something I'm not going to ask him. <laughs> no, of course. Um, but, uh, but a, a thing that's so pop culture influenced. Yeah. You know, you know I, I would have to think, you know, just based on what I've, read from him you know in interviews and stuff that i obviously coming that close to death i think of course is going to dramatically change everything and uh, so i would have to think that yeah maybe books five six and seven although you know i i certainly think by that point in time when he was writing book four was wizard and glass he knew it was going to be a seven book series he knew it was going to take that long, I think. But did he have, did he already know where he was going at that point? I I don't think so. Because even just based on the comment he made to me that it was, you know, it was that book. It was, it was the change in Roland in that book is what like compelled him to, to keep going. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe if the accident doesn't happen and he doesn't lose that time, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it is a different, I, you know, I always feel like he he might have known the ending of the series, you know, because I mean that's just sometimes you know writers generally know. Uh, I'd like to think anyway they're not just making it up as they go along. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, with King in particular, that's kind of what he does. But uh, you know what I mean? Like I I, I feel like he kind of knew what was going to happen at yeah. the end of book seven. Like he had that planned. I think he had an idea for sure. Yeah, yeah I think, I think I, I don't so know too. If he specifically, maybe all you know, if he, if he already knew back then that, well, he's gonna he's gonna come through, and but this time he's gonna have the horn. Like, did mm-hmm. he know, did he have that detail? You know, all so many years before. Who I don't know. I would ask him that. I don't know if he'll tell me, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would think maybe those books look different. 
Certainly in, in Susanna, certainly when he writes himself into it. Um, right. It's still to this day, because I just went after I finished Wizard in Glass, I went online and I, I read a lot of excerpts and I just read a lot of stuff from the next three books just to kind of re-familiarize myself with those books again. And uh, that whole the whole bit where they, you know, they go to Maine and Stephen King is writing and they have to convince him to keep writing mm-hmm. in order. I still don't know that I understand. Like, if he doesn't keep writing, they don't exist, but but they do exist. I, I, it's... I still, yeah. I still don't get that. I, I can, can one of you explain it to me? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, absolutely oh. not. No, um, like you, I. It's been may, maybe what four or five years, I think, since I've last re- revisited those later books. Um, I'm well, I'm much more well versed in the first four because I, uh, when I got hooked on Dark Tower, there was the only the first three out, and I just reread those a couple of times. And then with each new book, I started at the beginning, and so I've read those first three books, you know, more times than any of the other ones because I'd read it before Wizard and Glass. Then when you know Wolves came out, I read, you know, read them all leading up to uh, right uh, Wolves and Song and and Dark Tower, like all all those. So I don't know. It's been I. I don't know. Have a lot of the detail on there. I know that they had to make that mission, you know, that stop on their quest for a reason. And you know, and I, they did specifically state that if King, that King was so important to uh, their quest that like they were uh, like he, he insinuates the van accident was was like set up right to um to try to take him out and to stop him telling this tale. Um, you know, I don't know. There's, there are so many layers to this, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to come in and sound super smart. I wish we had Brian Fuller here right now. <laughs> He'd come in and knock us all flat with, with a great observation on this. I mean, but, that though, that right there tells me that if he never gets hit by a van, then maybe he doesn't write, even write any of that, that. Oh, it's, it's for sure different, going to be different. And it, it wouldn't have come out all at once. Uh, because I think he said that him getting hit by the van, you know, made him kind of realize just how delicate life is and how he yeah, can't yeah. count on, you know, putting off Dark Tower for I remember whenever. Him, yeah. I remember him talking about he, he got a letter or something from some woman, an older woman saying like, you know, you you better finish Dark Tower before you die, like or <laughs> before I die. <laughs> right. Well, um, I mean, I got I, I got to say. I did, it, love, I did love Father Callahan, though. I did love the right. fact that Callahan came back and that he's been basically in thunderclap all this time. Like I loved yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's, it's a great touch, but, but I just circling back to the van accident. I, it sounds callous to admit it, but my first thought when I heard it was like, Oh no. And then instantly followed by, but what happens to at the end of dark tower? You know, what, 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 what if he, what if he doesn't make it in like, you know, cause it just, it, it, it sounds selfish, but like that was my relationship with King. I didn't know him personally, right? Right. but, but my relationship right. was as a reader and specifically, uh, as a fan of this series that at this point had no end have and it was a journey read, to an end. Yeah. Have either of you read later yet? Yes. Yes. I'm working, I'm working on it. And not, to be, not to be, not to be spoilery, but you know, that, that same idea comes up in later with the author who dies and and then you know the kid has to 
basically be the medium and and uh so people so they can find right. out how the story finishes um yeah 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 no, and, it's, uh, and, uh, and, uh, i'm not done yet i'm about uh 100 pages from the end but i'm really digging it oh man it's such a quick read yeah i uh i blew through it in two sittings and i'm the world's slowest reader so right right so uh yeah, no, it's great. Um, you know, I, I love his hard case crime stuff. Joyland was, I think, one of the best things he's written in in the right. last like fifteen years. Oh, it was great. He's yeah. uh, since we have you here talking about Wizard and Glass, um, maybe we should talk a little bit about um some of our favorite aspects of of that book. Like, I love that. Uh, I, I love the thinny is fully explored here. That that was one thing that I remember vividly capturing my imagination reading it the first time as a teenager as a thoroughly teenager just wanting to see my quartet going forward um but i love that they're got they're at a campfire around a thinny and that's what prompts the story where the thinny plays a major part in the big finale right um and uh thinny for people who may not have read the book who must be fucking completely lost by this point if they've made it this far and they haven't read this um uh, thinny is is essentially a thin place between uh two worlds correct so it's like Mm -hmm. i think it's described as like it's also some type of monster entity thing too because it I think they live in there, don't they? Yeah, because, well, something, you know, it calls to you and it talks to you and yes. it tries to get you to come to it. And there have been like tentacles have come out of it, right? Like the smoke right. kind of becomes tentacular, if that's even a, a word. <laughs> yes, it is. I, actually. Like, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's like a thin, it's like where the the dimensions, you know, rubs thin between different dimensions, right? Right, but it's not like you just walk in there and all of a sudden you walk out and you're on Earth Seven, it, you go <laughs> right. in and you die. You because right. they yeah, I think you're fucked if you walk into a thinny. Yeah, like that's yeah. the that's the whole point of that Eyebolt Canyon thing. They're just right. like marching in there and they are done for. You know, oh, some yeah. horrible Hellraiser ass beasts are gonna <laughs> tear them apart in there. Yes, that scene is so great too with the the confusion and all the horses stomping on, you know, riders that have fallen off and the, mm-hmm. the, the smoke from the thinny and the dust in the air and the smoke from the fire from the brush. And I mean, the way he writes that whole scene and I bolt at the end, I mean, it's, it's brutal. It's, it's, it's just incredible. Just to further examine that. I think that that thinny was probably leading to that specific horrific place that I, the, my idea, my thought was that the thinny, itself is is just a doorway yeah and it just happened to be that that doorway was was uh to another, but then there's also other doorways in, in the thing that are like le- you know uh, uh legit doors <laughs> you know literal doors so so maybe uh i'm i'm mistaken on this but uh or thinnies are just in general they're bad doorways <laughs> right that's it they it make a be. noise they make that noise that as you know, any living creatures uh, don't like the noise the thinny makes from what I can right. tell. So that's, you know, that's a warning. Like this is a bad For sure. place. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, now, one thing that I also would like to talk about before we wrap up is, is the finale. I'm really curious to go back through this book, actually, you know, with your thoughts on Roland's obsession with the tower overwriting everything at a certain point that might play into some of what I feel about the end, uh, which like still blows my mind. It, it's something that uh, on reread Susan's death 
which has been so inevitable since the first like hints at his backstory in the first book. And we've known it was coming and all this stuff. What's so brilliant about his writing here is that he manages to convince the reader, even if they've read the fucking book already, that there could be a happy ending here. Like they win, right? They kind of win. And you're like, Oh my God, like this, this might be the, the, the time when Roland and Susan can, can go off together. You know, maybe this is the, the time where Roland can have a happy life or whatever. And, and he manages to convince you while you're reading that it's a possibility, even if you've read the thing already. And then, you know, and then she, of course, doesn't make it out. I don't know. That just goes back to this being one of King's best written of all the books. The fact that he has that talent to, in structure, in in setting up and paying off things and character development. Like, he's giving you all the signals that this is going to have a happy ending. Uh, yeah. And it yeah. doesn't. I agree. Obviously, having read the book before and knowing that Charyu tree is coming uh, and I'm reading it this time and I'm reading it on my Kindle and I'm thinking, wait, did it, you know, I don't really remember that last little part there. Maybe (laughs) is this some different edition? Maybe is there, (laughs) is there an edition? All this wishful thinking of maybe this is some new edition where he rewrote this part and she's going to make it like, because it literally up to, you know, up till he's looking into the grapefruit. And again, if people haven't read this book, then what the hell I'm talking about a grapefruit. <laughs> it's one of Merlin's glass. There was 13, 13 glass balls basically. And I don't want I, you don't need me to explain it to you, but uh, um, the pink one plays a major part in wizard and glass and uh, a magic ball. And when Roland looks into it and then when he realizes he's too late and uh, there's no way he's going to make it, I mean, that it's just such a punch in the gut. No, I think another thing to touch on is the romance of the story. Mm-hmm. I would like that on record for a, a Wizard and Glass episode, because, you know, while at the time I was resistant to it in recent rereadings, I feel like I've responded way more to, again, the romance of the story. It's a fucking romantic ass story. This is like (laughs) Romeo and Juliet level shit going on here. Like within the world of the Dark Tower, I think it's an extremely important element to the Dark Tower overall that you you see this side of Roland. And um, I guess I'm just wondering then uh, how you all reacted to that at first, how you react to it now, like how you feel about this as a, a concept, you know. Do you have anything? I to love say? the I love the love story. I I loved it the first time I read it, uh, and I loved it even more now. Uh, reading it, uh, having been happily in a relationship for twenty one years and mm-hmm. with a nine and a half year old son, it 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 struck an even deeper chord with me this time around. Um, I I love the love story in this book, and that's what makes it even harder when. You know, knowing that he's he doesn't get this going forward, it's it's only going to get worse for him. Right. Uh, you know, the fact that then he goes back to Gilead and and shoots his mother, who is about to hand him a present. You know, <laughs> um, and knowing you know where he came from even before that. You know, he with Martin sleeping with his mom, and then him having to take the test against Court early, and then losing Jake. I mean. Everything this 
that, you know, the guy is just constantly, constantly, constantly put to the test. Having read this book again now, I, I don't know that I could read five, six, and seven right now. I, I, I feel too bad for him. <laughs> <laughs> too emotionally devastating. Um, yeah. The love story absolutely works. It is incredibly well-written and very delicately written. And this is coming from, uh, from somebody who's, who, you know, who's been a little critical of how King has handled some, some iffy romance and especially, you know, sexy scenes uh, in the past. This is definitely his most thoughtful and detailed romance. And it's with a character that up to this point you like and think is a badass, but wouldn't imagine seeing that side of him, mm-hmm. which makes it even more interesting. Um, right. To, to kind of underline that and to furthering, you know, what you had mentioned earlier, Scott, about how, you know, the first four books are of their own piece. Um, the first four books are all unique genres uh, within an overall umbrella of the Dark Tower, which I find fascinating. That is, the first one's primarily a Western, but it's got horror and fantasy and all that stuff in it, but it's primarily Western. The second one is primarily a science fiction book. It, it is you know, doorways into different realities and time periods and time travel and, you know, dimension travel, all that stuff. The third one's very much a fantasy adventure. And this one is very much a romance, you know, a fantasy romance book. And then books five, six, and seven all are a little bit more like muddled in terms of an overall genre. Of course, you have the the samurai influence of, of Wolves of the Kala, um, the, but it, that's goes back and you know, it's less samurai and more, you know, magnificent seven. It's more, you know, it's, it's less seven samurai, more magnificent seven. So it's more of a Western again. Um, but you know, all the fantasy and, uh, all that stuff is taking a more prominent role. So all the, the genres of the last three are kind of its own unique thing. The last three are dark tower is the genre, but the first three or the first four have their own, you know, unique playing in, in very, different kinds of sandboxes, which is why I think that wizard and glass marks a very interesting, you know, point in the series and, you know, almost a finale to that, to that. uh, Yeah, sure. Feeling. And that's what I associate most with the dark tower, to be honest. Like, and I love the last three books, you know, maybe song of Susanna, not so much, but you know, I love uh, even in that one, I love pieces of it. You know, I love what they built too. I love the, the scope of the world. I I'm deeply in love with the ending. I could, I, I love, love the ending of the dark tower. Not the confrontation, not the final confrontation, but the resolution of Roland's journey or the non-resolution of Roland's journey as it is. Scott, how, romantic- do you, how do you feel about the ending? I love the ending. Um, you know, for, for me, I, I had some friends who felt differently than me and we would get into heated discussions. <laughs> what, do they, what do they want? Like, what do they want from it? A, a complete resolution, like, to know what everything means and where, what is Midworld and why is there a Sitco sign? Is it Boston? And why is like, you know, mm-hmm. just they wanted to, to know whatever, what everything means and what it, is it the past? Is it the future? What's like, you know what I mean? Like they wanted the Merovingian to be at the top of the tower to, to have a, a <laughs> yeah. hundred page explanation of everything and, that had happened in the previous. That's handbook. why I have never watched matrix two and three. Ever again. <laughs> um, yeah. Literally, just on a tangent, my son watched Matrix for the first time. We watched mm. it together like last month. And of course, he's blown away. He's like, there's a two and three. I'm like, uh-huh. Kind of. <laughs> and we got we didn't even get halfway through two. 
not mm-hmm. maybe a quarter of the way through two, they get to like Zion and he's like, where's the, where's the action? I'm like, yep. <laughs> all they're doing is talking. I said, that's pretty much all they do. And uh, we've never gone, we turned it off and we've, he's never shown any interest to go back mm-hmm. and watch two and three. Um, but yeah, th- that's what they wanted. They wanted everything. And I'm like, yeah, but he, he's kind of giving you everything essentially because you know, the journey that Roland's going to have to take again, it's, it's all happened before it's all going to happen again, but this time he has the horn. So he did change one thing. So it gives you this glimmer of hope and right. essentially you've never had hope with Roland. Roland is the, the epitome of a lost cause and, uh, and, and should have, as they say in the book, should have just cried off, you know, <laughs> centuries ago, but he couldn't, he couldn't do it. And, and rightfully so. And, and this time around, he's got the horn. So you get that glimmer of hope that somehow he he's going to make things right for the future of all the worlds because he's going to save the beams. And hopefully that is the case. You know, I, there's, as much of me wants another Dark Tower book, not one that happens, you know, not something like Little Sisters of Aloria or um, uh, the other one that came out. Uh, went through the keyhole. Went yeah. through the keyhole. You know, I, I, I'll take books that books that side stories. I'll take those all day long. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm very, very torn over. Would I want another book that takes place after the Dark Tower? Like, mm. do I really want that? Probably not. I'm yeah. like, yeah, but then I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think I would want it. I think I would like. I, I see what you're saying with Wind Through the Keyhole and uh, Little Sisters and all of that, but I also feel like, okay, here's my pitch. Ideally, if there's another Dark Tower book, it's an anthology. You know, it's short stories and it's just shit taking place in that universe. That's right. good enough for me. You know, sure. I, I want to explore the uh, corners of the universe more, but I don't need another thing that's extending it somehow. No, no, the original, yeah. the original story. Yeah, so like, you know, I've, I've, I have a thousand questions about Flag, just like everybody does. But do I really want them answered? <laughs> I don't. That's uh, an, that's another one of my like things. Is I, I really want a Flag book though. Like I would, I would love a book called Flag. Right. It's a, it's a jet black cover. There's nothing else on it, you know. And it's just short stories about Flag, uh, getting up to his hijinks and his, uh, you know, shenanigans in yep. other worlds. Like I yep. would read that shit all day. Give me a yes. thousand pages of that. But I, I don't want to interfere with uh, the Dark Tower chronology. Any right. No, I, I agree. I, I, I agree. Yeah, we had Bev Vincent on the show and he uh, mentioned that the only thing that he's ever discussed with King about a further toe dipping in the Dark Tower is that King is interested in Jericho Hill and telling that that story. Uh-huh. And that was one thing that he like, I think he said that he, he kept them from doing in the comics. Is that what he said? He said there was yeah, something was doing- about that. Yeah. Something was doing that, and he just like said, "You have free reign to do whatever you want, but do not, you know, tell Jericho Hill because that's a story I might tell oh, someday." Why did I think? Why did I think they did in those Marvel? They books? did yeah, do that they shit. Did too. They did yeah. do that shit. Maybe he wouldn't read it or something. I don't. There was something that Bev was saying that 
that um, that he specifically has made mention that he might revisit Jericho Hill. And so we might see a little sister's style story right. that is that is the actual events of Jericho Hill, which right. which uh, then, you know, that begs the because that's where he lost the horn. Right. Yes. So it's so it begs the question is like, is that going to be uh, would his retelling of that be him? you know, scooping up the horn and then that becomes, you know, the backstory to the new, the new journey, or is this, you know, what happened in the original or mm-hmm. in the timeline that we read in the dark tower. Right. So, I don't know. All that stuff is, is fascinating. And that's, you know, any, any, like you guys, anything he wants to do to dip his toe back in, if he wanted to make a whole nother series of books, uh, I'd be like, maybe not, a, you know, I don't know if it's a great idea, but if you're into it, dude, I'll, I'll read it. Um, oh, I'm going to read uh, it. No matter what, <laughs> yeah, no shit. Imagine, imagine a short story that's just like, you know, laying out the details for the fall of Lud, and mm. and ah. and the people within that place. Like, are you You're fucking right. shitting me? I would read yeah, that. All over. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm horny about this. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like you know, just all of all of that. I'm d- dying to know. Yeah, they did do. Marvel did do Jericho Hill. It was a five issue limited series. Okay, right. Yeah, I th- I have yeah. it. I've never read it, but I, I actually I have it. I know I do somewhere. Do we have any other topics we uh, want to cover here? I think that I would like to. You said you have a, a a kid who's around your age now that, or around your age when you started reading King. Is is he interested at all in any of that? Like, in would you? Like, what would you let him read at this age? And like, have you made any sort of game plan of, of sharing mm, your love yes. of, of King with him? Yeah. You know, that's a good question. Obviously he's very aware of my love of Stephen King. Cause it's, you know, not allowed to touch the first editions though. Yeah. There's a pretty large, <laughs> pretty large bookcase filled with stuff that he, you know, he looks at every once in a while and uh, he hears me talk about Stephen King quite a bit. And, and he's definitely, interested i mean he's talked about seeing it since it since it came out um him and some of his friends that age group are very fascinated with it i just think also because it was such a big deal and you know you see pennywise in the trailer and he's like why is it scary i don't understand why it's scary it doesn't seem scary to me and and my wife pearl and i have had this conversation with him many times like it's just it's not even so much pennywise that makes the movie or the story inappropriate. It's the real people in the story. Mm. It's the, it's the horrible humans that exist in Derry that it's Beverly's father that makes it inappropriate. You know, like uh, it's yeah, Bev's father, Henry Bowers. Yeah. 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 It's the bullies. I don't know that he's ready to see that scene. And you know, in the, in the movie where the rock fight scene, like um, it's just, you know, wait, I'll wait at least 12 for stuff like that. Right. But I, I have thought about what would be the a good introduction into, you know, into the world. And I, I you know, I don't know. I, even even the talisman gets, I mean, that gets brutal in some places. Right. Eyes of the Dragon, you know, I, I just think he needs to be, I was 11, I think, when I read Carrie, if I, um, and, you know, that's pretty young to be reading that book. 11 or 12, but, um, you know, he's close. Uh, if he's still interested in horror, which I'm sure he will be even more so in another year or two, you know, then maybe figure out how to open that door. I, I can't imagine how much fun you would, uh, 
you would have sharing all that that stuff with you know with uh, someone you love like that so that'd be great um and i guess the final thought that i have on this now that you've mentioned eyes of the dragon is that i think one of the reasons i love wizard and glass so much is that it feels very much like eyes of the dragon does yeah. right that that's the first of the dark tower books that kind of has that same sweeping fantasy feel of eyes of the dragon well it's uh, got, which also it's, it's, it's got that palace intrigue feel right to it, you know sure. and and that's in uh and witches <clears throat> and wizards and yeah, yeah it's it's definitely in wizard and glass and it's also in the um in the pilot clearly what they were aiming to do was like an a and b storyline thing where there's like roland and his content like navigating this but also it would cut away to Stephen to Shane and yeah. And, and that was like hardcore yeah. game of Thrones shit. Yeah. So Scott, is there anything that you have to promote? Is there anything you want to aim people towards any, any uh, stuff of yours or any way to, you know, to, uh, for fans to, to kind of look at more of your stuff? Like what, what do you got for us? This is your spot to, to plug whatever you want. I'll interrupt here. I'm sorry. Um, I understand you're not, comfortable finishing a new album before you can go on tour with it but is that still the case i'm comfortable finishing a record it's uh releasing a record until (laughs) we can uh fair enough fair enough go play shows but we're still in the midst of uh we're writing we we started writing before covid we had already been writing in 19 for a new record and so by the time quarantine happened we already had about eight or nine arrangements of things that we were working on and and through COVID, there have been more and more ideas. It's just a case of us being able to get in a room and and play stuff and and really just kind of bang it out and play stuff over and over again because that's really where a lot of our songs, you know, are born when we actually just start playing the ideas over and over. And you could, you know, I oh yeah, that's great. Or no, let's no, that shouldn't be there. You know, it happens in the room a lot of it. Um, you can only do so much sending parts around through email you know eventually we got to get in a room but I, I do i i do think we will finish a record this year and um you know so hopefully that's good timing for for 22 and uh us be able to release it and and uh, go out and play shows that you know that would be certainly the best case scenario yeah I did just finish the motor sister album and that will uh we're gonna figure out what to do with that uh, it's still got to be mixed so it's not done done but um, you know, that will be ready. Uh, now we just need to make a plan between us and the label as far as what would be the best way to put it out. What, you know, what's the idea behind it? Anthrax's 40th anniversary is this year, specifically July 18th is our 40th birthday. And, um, how does that feel by the way? We're like surreal. <laughs> it just, the idea that I've been doing something for you know, more than two thirds of my life. It, it's crazy. It's, uh, um, and of course we're not out on tour and being able to like play anniversary shows or something. So we do have a whole big plan in effect. That's going to start rolling out in May online to celebrate our, our four decades of, of being a band. Uh, we have a, a graphic novel coming out based on the among the living record and, we were able to put a kind of a real wish list together of, of people to basically pick a song and how that song inspired them. I mean, we got Grant Morrison who wrote a story based on Indians and uh, we got Brian Azzarello 
you know, from comic books. I, I, I like a oh, wish oh, list. Shit. The first two people I wanted when I said, look, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. I'm a comic book guy. And if I can't get some of my favorite writers to do this, then I don't want to do it. I don't want it to just be a whole bunch of band guys. And don't get me wrong. We got Corey from Slipknot. We got Rob Zombie. We got uh, Gerard and Mikey Way, you know, from My Chemical Romance. You know, Gerard mm-hmm. writes on Academy. So we got everyone I wanted. We got Grant Morrison. We got Brian mm-hmm. Azzarello. I got Brian Posehn. I got uh, uh, Rick Remender. Um, it, it, you know, I'm, and I'm sure I'm missing somebody at, at this moment in time, but um, and me, well, I'm. I wrote. I am the law. We got the rights to uh, rebellion in the UK. Gave us the rights. I had a pitch at my Judge Dredd story, uh, and they greenlit it. So, uh, and then I got Chris Weston, who's an incredible Dredd artist. And uh, um, I just got all my final art pages today. And I and uh, um, and I had already to the roughs. I had already written the dialogue for six of them. So I got seven pages left to go on that. And it's extremely exciting and daunting and nerve wracking at the same time because I'm writing a judge dread story, but yeah, so we're working on that. And I guess that's coming out soon ish. I think may maybe that's at Z two comics, but all you got to do really is follow me on Instagram. It's just Scott Ian Thrax. So my name with, T-H-R-A-X on the end. And uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you could find out everything. Uh, I'm on Twitter, too, and Facebook, but it's all just from Instagram. I only post on Instagram, and then it just goes everywhere else. So if you ever need to know what I'm doing, just find me on Instagram. I heard a funny story about you some years ago. I used to live in Dallas, and Dimebag Daryl used to have uh, a titty bar in Dallas. And the last time I was there, I heard a story that you were there once doing donuts in a limo in the parking lot. Is that true? Um, yes. I believe, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, when you were with, with, with Daryl and Vinny, that's about as quiet as it got. So, <laughs> I don't yeah. remember the name of the club, but I, I've was, been there yeah, a number of times. It, it was called the clubhouse. Yes, the clubhouse. Oh Jesus. Those guys were the best. They were they were the two two of my friends who really lived it like um yeah. more so than anyone I I ever knew in a band. I wasn't a part of the the like let's say the the 80s scene with bands like motley and oz you know or when ozzy was in his full party mode or like i wasn't a part of that but in my world the pantera guys daryl and Vinny, i mean they they lived that uh you know and i got to be a part of that orbit a lot over the years certainly a lot in the 90s uh between like 92 and and 2000 and I mean, it was a whole lot of fun, something I really couldn't keep up with most of the time. But uh, (laughs) I did my best to, you know, uh, because it was a whole lot of fun hanging with those dudes. Right on, man. I don't think we've ever ended a show about a story about a limo doing donuts in the titty bar parking lot. But uh, this is a good place as any to (laughs) to wrap up. Awesome. Uh, We'll ask Kathy Bates when she right. You know, eventually appears on the show. Yeah, when we get Kathy Bates, Oscar-winning Kathy Bates, yes. we'll ask her about how many donuts she's done in titty bar parking lots. I, you probably <laughs> <can't try. laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, she's probably yeah, she's probably got more than any any previous guest. Yeah. Uh, but thank you, Scott, so much for for uh, taking the time to dive into some Dark Tower nerdiness with us. We very much appreciate it. Yeah, man. Anytime. Many thanks to Scott Ian for joining us for that. Once again, yet another uh, spirited Dark Tower discussion. I hope uh, everybody likes those as much as we do because we're you know we're Dark Tower nerds over here, so we're going to keep doing them. Yeah, we're going to keep doing them until we run out of titles. How many have we done so far? We did the first one with Damian Eccles. Right. We did a bonus episode on Wolves of the Kala, but that doesn't really count. We'll have to have right. the main feed. By the end of all of this, uh, we will have covered every book in the in the main feed in some form, uh, in some very specific yeah. form where we're covering that specific book with specific guests. We just have to find the right guests for it. Yeah. The guests have to share our nerdiness over uh, <laughs> over the Dark Tower. Maybe that's the maybe that's the very final episode. Maybe that's when we get King for and have him for the Dark Tower, the seventh book. Sure, let's do it. Let's uh, put it out there. <laughs> you know, if we'll if we will it, dude, it is no dream. Yeah, we'll make it happen. As usual, this is the point in the show where we are going to slowly wrap up by telling you guys what's coming up. Uh, next for the show so we have our patreon bonus this friday which scott will tell you about in a second and then uh next wednesday we have our main feed episode that we are going to tease this is a very rowdy one (laughs) this is a longer than usual episode it is very rowdy uh and it is with a returning guest who's a favorite amongst KingCast listeners and the title is uh one that's actually pretty near and dear to my heart this was a, a title that i read like right when I started getting into King and this was one of the newer books that he put out. Um, so it, it wasn't one of these things where I read, like I was catching up on like the old classics, Christine, Cujo, uh, Carrie, Shining, all that stuff. This was what was like new on the bookshelf for me. And that title is Needful Things. I'm not happy about this one. You know, <laughs> I'm not happy about this one. I'm going to be very upfront about the fact that I'm not happy about this one. When Eric says that it's very rowdy, you need to understand the complete derailment that he's talking about here. I'll just go ahead and own it up front. I was so excited for this particular guest to return because I knew it would be shenanigans that uh, before we started recording, I went out and I was going to buy uh, buy a few extra beers to have along with the show and opted for a bottle of champagne. And then I drank the bottle of champagne on the air and things got very spirited very quickly. Whether or not you will enjoy listening to it is entirely up to you, but we are going to release it, and um, this is me apologizing for it up front. <laughs> for the record, I was sober throughout the entire thing, and I think it's hilarious, so hopefully everybody else uh, digs it as, as much as I do and can forever make Scott embarrassed that he got shit-faced on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at one point, it devolves into a complete clusterfuck of a side conversation where I'm trying to send pictures of Robin Williams' feet to our guest to prove a point, and she refuses to look at them. It's, it's so uh, good. So good. <laughs> it's a lot. So right. strap in for that one. Um, right. You've got a couple of serious ones over the last few weeks, I feel like, and this one will be a return to uh, to form. Hit him with the noise, Eric. <laughs> yeah, that's what you ought to expect. So on our Patreon, we are, we're doing a bonus episode that's sort of built around, how do I explain this one? Uh, our guest is Charles Bromesco, who is a, uh, film critic of some note. 
he he writes for a number of places. He's he's one of those types, makes his way around. Uh, so I don't know if I can give him a home base. Little White Lies would probably be what it is, but uh, uh, a very funny gentleman. And he pitched us on coming in to do essentially a guide to working from home through the prism of the lessons of Secret Window, Secret Garden. And that's what we're going to be discussing. It's harder to describe than it is to actually do it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's there's a, a lot of like how the freelance life as a as a journalist uh, kind of mirrors some of the process that the main character in Secret Window, Secret Garden goes through. And there's, you know, there's lots to talk about, about the the movie adaptation. There's there's a it's, it's a it's a good one. It's a good fun one. And uh, if you're not already subscribed to the Patreon, you want to go to patreon.com backslash the King cast and get signed up. I've lost count of how many episodes we've done on there, but there is a shit ton, almost as many episodes as we've done on the main feed, I think. Yeah. And that's not even counting the commentaries. This is just regular bonus bonus stuff. And we have some amazing bonus uh, guests lined up for the the next uh, like couple of months. So if you've been uh, sitting on the fence waiting, now's a really good time because uh, there's going to be some some really good shit there. Yes. And please head over to iTunes and uh, like, rate, subscribe, all of that. Five star reviews only, please. And just another reminder that the one year KingCast anniversary show is on its way. In fact, is it the week after? It is. Needful things? Oh, boy. Y'all aren't ready. We're not technically ready. We're still working <laughs> on it. It's been weeks that we've been working on this one episode. You'll understand why once you've heard it. But uh, we're in the home stretch now, I'm happy to say. And uh, I think y'all are going to be surprised and delighted by what we've come up with. Holy it's going to be ridiculous. If you close. think this Needful Things episode that, that we're releasing next week is ridiculous, wait till you see what we're doing for our, our one year anniversary show. <laughs> yes. It's going to be a circus. I can promise you that. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I think that about covers it. So stay tuned next week for Needful Things and then for our Patreon subscribers this Friday, uh, diving into the world of Secret Window, Secret Garden via the prism of working from home. See you next Wednesday, folks. And again, I, I really do apologize. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>